Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. The Holy Spirit has purpose to encourage the Jews there in the first century. And that's why this letter is being written. And he's encouraging them that Jesus is better than your old way of life. Let the church say, I mean, how many of you would like to go back to the old life? You're the Thursday night crew. Of course you're excited about the baptism. You believe in new life. You see, and this group, they wanted to go back to their old way of life. Well, why would you ever want to go back to your old life? Why would you ever want to go back to Judaism and forsake the Lord? Now, I don't know what you would go back to, but for them, it was a religion. It was laws. It was festivals. It was, you could only walk 613 steps on the Sabbath day. So he exhorted them, don't drift away. Don't harden your hearts. And over chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, he systematically proved through the word of God that Jesus is better than any man. Do you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? That he was the greatest man that ever lived, ever born from a woman. But yet Jesus is greater even than John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than any angel, any mystical being, because the angels worship Jesus. Even the demons believe and shudder. Jesus is greater than any leader, including Moses. He's greater than any leader that's walked the face of the earth. In fact, Moses said that after him, the prophet would come. Jesus He's even greater than the mighty Joshua who brought the children of Israel into the promised land. But this group, they were facing something different. They're filled with anxiety. They're filled with anxiety because of the pressures of the world, the Roman world around them. There are problems in their Jewish families because they've come to Christ. And celebrating the Passover has become quite a deal when you start talking about religion. They're being persecuted. Some thrown in the gladiator's arena and some being thrown in jail. And as they were facing these things, the Holy Spirit wants them to know through the word that Jesus, our Joshua, In the midst of all of this problem and pressure and persecution, we can have a rest, a peace that passes understanding for our souls. You see, there's a peace that we can have with God because of Jesus Christ, and there's a peace of God that Jesus gives us that we can choose to live in today. In Hebrews chapter 4, let's pick it up there in verse 11. He says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the example of disobedience. We should be diligent. And the way that we remain diligent to stay in the peace of God is that we are diligent in our relationship with the Lord. That our prayer time is secure. That our 
Bible time is secure. That our fellowship time is secure. You see, we've got to be diligent about it because the stream of tendency is against us. The stream of the world will always be pushing us to go the way of the world. So he's telling us, I want you to be diligent about spiritual things. Be diligent about staying in the peace that God offers. So in Hebrews chapter 4, would you take a look with me? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, he says this. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, we have to be careful to catch what's happening in verse 12, because here's what happens. Oftentimes, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is taken out as a single verse. It's usually memorized and put on a Thomas Kincaid picture. It's usually memorized and put on a plaque that goes on our fridge. For the word of God is living and powerful. And we've memorized it as a single verse or see it on the walls of our house. And sometimes we can forget the context to which it's connected. So when we read this verse, all of a sudden, oh, I know this verse. And it becomes a stand alone. But what we've got to understand, it's connected to the whole. See, the Holy Spirit knows something. The Holy Spirit knows that as he's dealing with specific issues that this church is struggling with. They're struggling with whether Jesus is an angel or not. They're struggling whether Jesus is like the prophets. Just a great man. He's greater than a man. He's the God-man. They're struggling if Moses is better than Jesus. They're struggling with whether or not Joshua is stronger than Jesus. And what am I going to do with all of this anxiety? And as the Holy Spirit is ministering to their hearts through the Word of God, he has pulled passages from the Old Testament to prove what he is saying. And as they read chapter 1, they're a little convicted. (laughs) I thought Jesus was just a man. I didn't realize it. And as they read chapter 2, oh, wait, oh, I see now he became lower than the angels, so he become a man, but he's the God-man. Wow, I didn't realize I was so wrong. And then in chapter 3, I realized through Scripture that he's greater than Moses. And I just told my friends, maybe Jesus and Moses are like the same. And Oh, who could be like Joshua in Jesus' name? Actually, is Joshua in the Greek, but wait a second. I mean, what's going on here? What do I feel going on inside my heart? Have I been wrong? Am I convicted? We all know what this is. Have you ever been reading the Bible and boom, it hits you? And the Holy Spirit just goes, That's for you. Ever happen? Ever happen to you? Have you ever, like, it's happened to you one morning and you make the decision, well, I'm not having my devotions tomorrow. (laughs) Like, has it ever hit you so hard when a pastor is preaching and you think your wife called me? You think there was an email. I even used a specific illustration. And you know how I know that it's hit? I watch you go like this to your wife. I see it. I notice when you don't come back the next week. 
I see the way you walk out of the lobby. You see, sometimes you greet me with, hey, Pastor Jet, and sometimes you greet me with, hmm. (laughs) Has it ever happened to you that you've experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And your heart begins to pound, and all of a sudden, the life that you're living, you realize is wrong because the Spirit has spoken to you from the Word. Let the church say, that means you agree. That means you agree. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit, as He was using the Word in their life, He wants to use it in your life for spiritual, surgical procedure. Because that's what the Word does. The Word divides. The Word discerns. It divides your flesh from your spirit. You wouldn't even know what your flesh was if it wasn't for the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would have come up with, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two? How many of you would have come up with that one? How many of you would have come up with, if someone slaps you on one side, turn the other cheek? Well, you know what I came up with? The third strike rule. Someone slaps you on one side, turn the other cheek. And then you entice them to slap you again because there's no rules after that. That's what I would come up with. How many of us would come up with this stuff? Like, love your enemy. Are you kidding me? Kill your enemy. Make them feel horrible. Oh, and when trouble happens to them, call them and say, ha, 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 ha. That's what I would have come up with. How many of us would have come up with this stuff? But the Word of God divides the flesh from the Spirit. Let me tell you why. Because retribution feels good. And when Jesus tells us that we are not to revenge, and that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Some of us read that and go, boom, that hurt. And what the word does is it divides feelings from faith. And even though you are so mad at that person, in your devotions tomorrow morning, the Spirit has you read Ephesians chapter 4. Forgive as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Boom! But I don't even like them! Forgive them. Have you ever felt it before? How many of you are feeling it now? I've noticed the laughter has kind of died down a little bit. The Spirit is moving. Your hearts are pounding. God is speaking. And I may not even be giving you the verse, but the Spirit is already speaking it to you. That's what the Spirit does. He uses the Word to divide flesh from Spirit. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I got one of the greatest phone calls of my life. There's a young man in my life many years ago And something happened where I had to challenge him in the Word. And when I challenged him in the Word, he was involved and engaged with a ministry that I was involved and engaged with. And I asked him to step down from the ministry and walk with me through a restoration road. Next morning, I showed up for work, and he had packed up his bags in the middle of the night and was gone. I haven't spoken to him in years. A few weeks ago, he's now a leader in his church. And a few weeks ago, he's reading his Bible. 
forgive. Forgive. For if you don't forgive, God won't. Ah, So yesterday he called. Pastor Chet, I was wrong. Please forgive me. My spirit leaped inside of me. And out of my mouth I said, It's about time you called. I didn't say that. Christine just looked at me like, I can't believe you did that. No, I didn't, okay? I didn't say that. I I was so excited. And I said to him, brother, I can't tell you how glad I am that we're back in relationship. I want you to know the night you left, I wept. Because I believe in you, and I believe you're anointed, and I believe that the enemy was trying to tempt you to walk away, and I know God has a plan for your life. And I said to him, can I bring you to California? Can you just come and bring your wife? I've never met her. I want to meet her. I want to be back, and I want to be part of your life. You see, that comes from the Word of God. He was convicted as he was reading a scripture and realized, I've got to do something about it. The spirit went, boom, I'm dividing flesh from spirit. I'm dividing feeling from faith. I'm about to perform surgery on your spirit. Let me tell you something about the surgical blade of the Holy Spirit. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. This word for sword, it's the little teeny sword. It's the one that can get you when no one's looking, okay? This purpose of the sword, let me tell you what the purpose of the sword is. And I've always wondered, why would you use that it's sharper than any double-edged sword? Because the only reason you put a sword in your hand is to kill someone. Think about that. You don't wait, you don't give a sword to your wife, you give flowers, You don't give a sword, a little juke of a sword to your friend. No, you give a juke of a sword to an enemy because you want them dead. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, the word is purposed to cause the death of self so that Christ can be formed in you. The sword of the Spirit is purpose to jab at the self so it dies so that Christ can be formed in you. You may not like it. You may not like the way he speaks to you. You may not like how directive the Word of God is. But neither did the Galatians. So Paul... He wrote a very direct letter to the Galatians. In chapter 4, you can read it later, he was so concerned about their faith that he said, I've got doubts about you. Whoa! <laughs> Imagine if I walked up to you and you come to church and you are a, like a... a, a you're, you are wonderful. <laughs> and you throw up your hands and... And, and you serve at VBS, and you do all kinds of things, but I saw you at 7-Eleven, and you had the, the, the foul mouth, you had a potty mouth. And I didn't tell you that I was there. Listen. Now, some of you may be convicted. Let the Spirit rest in your heart. 
And I walk up to you and I say to you, I have a doubt about your faith. <laughs> well, I'm leaving South Bay and I'm going to Rolling Hills. God bless you, Pastor Jet. Because that's what happens. As soon as you speak to someone a truth about the Word of God, their response is they're upset with the messenger instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, you may go to a different church, the Jesus is still there. And he's going to continue to get across something in you because there's one thing he's concerned about, that you are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So the face may change, but the message won't. The delivery may even change, but the message won't. Because Jesus will not give up. He will not relent until Christ is formed in you. So Paul, he doesn't give up. His goal was for the Galatian church to allow the Spirit of God to work in their lives. He says to them, are you trying to perfect in your flesh what God started in his spirit? He doesn't give up. He's concerned about their faith. He even uses his own life as an example. And take a look what he says. I've been hit by the sword of the Spirit. Myself has died. Now, I just put it in chat English, but you got to understand what he says. I've been crucified with Christ. The sword of the Spirit has got me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He uses his life as an example and he says, the sword got me. And I've died. I have crucified. And now I only live for Jesus. And then he encourages and he says in Galatians chapter 4 verse 19, My little children, listen how he addresses them. For whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Let me tell you something. After my wife delivered our first child, I made a very big mistake. One of my like, top five questions right after she gave birth was, do you want more children? <laughs> Didn't go over great. Did not. <laughs> All the ladies are like, whoa. Okay, I was 24 years old, okay? I was young and dumb, okay? I was young and dumb. In fact, when she was giving birth to our first child, she was singing. She was singing, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I looked at her and I go, does this even hurt you? (laughs) Young and dumb. She went like this. The joy of the Lord. She she really did. I, I love her. Gentlemen, we have no idea what it's like to give birth. No, easy. I've had gas. I know what pain feels like, okay? Gosh. (laughs) This is where all the ladies leave, okay? No, listen to what Paul says. I'll go through birth again. I will go through the pain of it again. He's talking about the pain that it took for the Galatians to come to Christ. And he's saying, I'm willing to go through all of that again because I'm desperate for Christ to be formed in you. That's the heart of a pastor. 
And I know, I know that sometimes the word seems directive. I know sometimes the word can be painful. I know sometimes the word can be even oppositional to your current state of mind, to the life that you're living. And sometimes it can feel like, is there any room there? It just is so matter of fact. I mean, forgive. Like, how long until you have to forgive? I mean, will you let me get over it first? Come on, Jesus. Well, I got a question for you. Which of you want your doctor to come in and say, hey, um, you have stage four cancer, but we've decided to just leave it in your body? Who wants a doctor like that? Who wants a doctor that recognizes there is a removable cancerous tumor and walk in and say, we're going to leave it there? Nobody wants that kind of doctor. We want a doctor that confidently, matter-of-factly, and directly comes into the room with a plan and lets us know, here's how we are going to surgically remove the thing that is killing you. And the Word of God is sharper than that blade. The Word of God is the same way. God knows how to take out the spiritual cancer that's killing you so that you can have real life. That's the Word of God. The Word of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Look what kind of doctor he is. And there is no creature hidden from, the, from his side, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let me tell you, he's the best doctor there is. You can't find any expert better than the great physician. He has equipment that is greater than an MRI. Not only does he have 4D imaging, he's got eternal imaging. He knows exactly how to look in your life and see the spiritual cancer that needs to be removed. He knows the issues. He knows the issues that you're dealing with, and he knows the tumors that need to come out so that you can have spiritual life. And the writer of Hebrews, speaking to Jews, he goes all the way back to the garden. Because Adam and Eve recognized they were naked. So they thought if they put some fig leaves on them, that God wouldn't find them. So when God came in the garden and went, where are you? Eve, he doesn't see us. <laughs> I want you to misimagine the moment. Okay, fig leaves. First of all, fig leaves are not very comfortable. Okay, just imagine our, our parents' first designer wear. Okay, it was like fig leaves from Target. Okay, it's like, are you serious? That's what you found? You found leaves on the ground, and you thought if you camouflaged, that's what they were doing. You thought if I camouflage myself and blend with the dust that I come from, God won't see me. And he's using this as an example to say, the greatest lie of the enemy is this. Don't worry about it. He doesn't see it. Don't worry about it. You're the only one that can get away with it. And what he's saying is you're accountable to God and God sees everything. No thing and nothing and no one is hidden from the Lord. 
He's the one we're giving an account to. So in Hebrews chapter 4, take a look at now at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What I love about this next section is the Bible reveals to us the kind of doctor or the bedside manner of Jesus. It reveals to us how he deals with us when he diagnoses us. And the Bible refers to him as a great high priest. Now, here's what's happening. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, the Spirit has used the Word of God to bring conviction. That's what the Word of God is. That's what the Word of God does. The Bible says that the Word of God is inspired. Every word from the Word of God is from the breath of God, and it's useful for uh, teaching. It's useful for convicting, and the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to bring conviction to our life. And so quickly, as they're feeling it, wow, man, this hurts. I can't believe I, I You don't want me to live with my boyfriend anymore? I mean, we've been together for 10 years, and he doesn't want to get married, and so I figured I'd just hold on a little bit longer, and I don't know what to do. I mean, are you telling me I've got, I can't be uh, uh, unequally yoked? Are you saying I need to let my light shine at work, and I've got to stop my potty mouth? I mean, what's going on, Pastor Jeff? This really hurts. I don't like what you're saying. So what the Spirit does is quickly reminds them of who Jesus is. He's our great high priest. And he brings us back into connection God when we didn't follow the exhortation of Hebrews. He says, don't drift away, but you've drifted. He says, don't harden your hearts. But those movies, they just don't bother you anymore because everyone else is watching them. So your heart's been hardened. You've drifted just a little. And there's a promise. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, he knew this promise really well. So he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. All we have to do is take one step, and the father comes running. You know the story of the prodigal son. All we have to do is show our face, and he says, I'm coming, and I'm running. You see, James tells us, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And then he shows us how. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. We need to repent. That's how we draw near to God when we've drifted. That's how we draw near to God when we've hardened our hearts. And the writer of Hebrews is quickly getting us to Jesus, who's our great high priest who will receive us. You see, he's introduced this great high priest all the way back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. In fact, this subject of Jesus being our great high priest, four to five chapters of the book of Hebrews is dedicated to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. So it seems that the most important concept that he is trying to get across through the process of their conviction is that they have a great high priest. Now, For us, we're 2,000 years 
from ever seeing a high priest in Jerusalem. So some of us are going, now, is a high priest like a Catholic priest? I mean, like, what's the role of a high priest? And so in order to understand what the writer is trying to get across, we need to understand the role of the high priest and why the writer is taking us to this place. Now, once again, remember, these guys are convicted by the word. And what they would do when they would be convicted, they would usually go to the temple, they would bring a sacrifice to the high priest, he would inspect it, and then they would sacrifice this unblemished lamb so that this person who feels convicted could get back into right relationship with God. But now they're no longer going to the temple. Now they feel convicted. Well, where do I go to get back in right relationship with God? You see, the high priest, he served as a mediator between God and man. He would go into the uh, uh, Holy of Holies once a year. His role was to ensure the relationship with God, the covenant that was with God through a sacrificial system. So if an individual sinned, every day they could offer a burnt offering for their sin. But in case you missed your sin, Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer an annual sacrifice for all of the nation. He was the mediator. He kept the relationship good. And you would recognize the high priest when you saw him. Take a look at this picture. This is what a high priest would look like. I think there we go. Now, I chose this picture because he looks like Chef Boyardee. And I just imagine a high priest to be like so loving and kind. And Chef Boyardee brings me Kenniolis. Do you remember those? And raviolis and spaghettios. It's like they were comfort food. So when I saw those, I was like, oh, Chef Boyardee. Okay, but now, oh, they're like, okay, Chet, move on from Chef Boyardee. Now, what I want you to see is this next picture to help us understand a little bit more about the high priest and who he was. Take a look at this picture. This is an example of the high priest. They had a special garment that was called by God for them to wear. Now, I want to point out two particular pieces. The first is the gold breastplate. And on that gold breastplate were precious stones. And on those inscribed on those precious stones were the tribes of Israel. Twelve stones, twelve tribes. Because the people of Israel were to be on the heart of the high priest. And then if you take a note, he's got two little gold buttons there. Well, under those gold buttons are two black onyx stones. And on those onyx stones, six tribes here, six tribes inscribed on the stones here. Because he was to bear the burden of the children of Israel. They were to be on his heart, and then he was to carry their burden. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, something that was never referred to this particular fellow. He says, we have a great, and maybe you'll underline that in your Bible. We have a great high priest. He's greater than the high priest. Because you don't have to go to the temple. You can go to him now. And he gives three reasons why he's the great high priest. If you take a look at the first. 
First, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we've got a great high priest. Look at number one, who's passed through the heavens. Now, the high priest was good. The high priest was good. Once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would have the opportunity to be in the presence of the Lord. But there was a problem. On the bottom of his robe were little bells. Jinga, 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 jinga. And everyone's moaning, jinga, jinga. I don't know how to do a bell sound, so just go with me. Jinga, 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 jinga. And on his foot was a little rope. So that if he walked into the Holy of Holies and he was not right before God and they didn't hear the jinga, jinga, jinga anymore, they pulled the rope because they knew he'd been wiped out by the Lord. Who wants that job? (laughs) I remember when my wife was stuck behind the lines in Liberia during the middle of the Civil War. We were separated for about three weeks and I was in one country and she was in another. So I went to the border of Ivory Coast. I chartered a canoe, like a 40-foot canoe. Okay, it's a little dugout log. And it was me and three guys and another fella from the United States. And we were going to go into Liberia in the middle of the war and rescue my wife. The night before we left, I confessed every sin I'd ever committed in my whole life. You know why? I want to die. Now, remember, I'm young. So I'm thinking, Lord, I am about to go and do something here. So I want you on my side. So I'm con- anything I could think of, I was confessing. And anything he could think of, he was confessing. He knows more about me than any human being on the face of this planet. And can I tell you, I am thankful that when he was 85 years old, he went to go be with Jesus, and now no one else knows but him. (laughs) Can you imagine the night before you go into the Holy of Holies? Honey, I need to sit down and tell you a few things like, I am not going in there and not coming out. Jinga, jing, I want jinga, jing, like the whole time. (laughs) You see, the high priest could go in and experience the Holy of Holies. But what he's saying here about Jesus is that Jesus passed through the heavens. The great high priest came from the presence of God. He came from heaven where God dwells. Look what John says in John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, no one's seen God at any time. No one. No high priest, nobody. The only begotten son who's the bosom of the father, he's declared him. In other words, Jesus was in the presence of God, so only Jesus is qualified to tell us about God. No wonder he says, hold fast to your confession, because Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's been in the presence of God. He's passed through the heavens. But secondly, I want you to see something. He says he's passed through the heavens. Jesus, take a look, the Son of God. He's the Son of God. Now, this is the conclusion of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, introducing us to chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And the conclusion of chapters 1 through 4 is Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the King Son. He's the Son of God. The prophets, the angels, Moses, Joshua, they know it. Because God is not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. Do you remember what we studied on Sunday? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Moses pointed to Jesus. Joshua expressed Jesus. The prophets talked about Jesus. The word of God was proved to say who Jesus is and even the Father. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, look what Jesus declares. Coming from the bosom of the Father, Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So I don't know how non-Christians can say anything about God when they don't believe in Jesus. Because only Jesus has been in the presence of God, not Muhammad. Amen? 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 Only Jesus has been in the presence of God. There is no other God-man that has ever walked the face of the earth. Only Jesus, the Son of God. And the Father's revealed all things to him. That's why he says, hold on to what Jesus said. He's been in the presence of God. If anyone can explain God, it's Jesus. Then he says this. He's passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God. Hold on to that confession. For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. See, all of a sudden, something's rising up in the person who's reading this. And he introduces it in the negative, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because a mounting argument was plaguing the church. The argument was this. If Jesus is the Son of God, can he really understand me and can he understand my plight? How many of you, when you go to confront someone, their first response is, well, I'm not Jesus, you know. Can Jesus really understand me? Because I need you to put you back into their world. You see, their world, everywhere you went, there were Greek God temples. Every city, you go anywhere in Turkey, you go anywhere in Israel, you go anywhere in Rome, you will find a ruin of a temple because they worshipped the Greek gods. And the Greek gods, they prided themselves, they prided themselves on not being human. In fact, Greek mythology scorned half-human what they called demigods, where the gods would have relationship with a human woman and she would give birth and out of that a demigod would be born. And the understanding of the first century world was that if you were son of a god, you were scorned by the gods. You have to understand what their mentality was. This was their culture. So was Jesus half human? Was he like a demigod? If he was the God-man and therefore he can't understand us? Was Jesus scorned by God because he was born of a woman and he's not able to help us because he's got his own problems to deal with with his dad? I mean, please help us understand. And what he's trying to get across is this. Jesus gets us. You see, the name Jesus tells us that he was fully man. He was the son of Mary. But he was fully God because he was the son of God. Paul said 
that Jesus didn't even think he was being robbed in Philippians chapter 2. He didn't even think he was being robbed, like, I can't believe I've got to go down and be a man. He didn't even feel like he was being robbed to become a man. He did it so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. He humbled himself, became obedient to his father, and then he obeyed his father, and he died on a cross for our sins. And as a man, he lived 33 years. My brother lived 33 years. And no one would ever doubt that he experienced what it was to be a man at 33 years old. He knew everything about life, even at 33 years old. And Jesus lived 33 years on the earth. He was tempted in every way that you are tempted, but he never gave way to the temptation. He purposed to honor God with his life. I love the way that one author put it. He was an immovable boulder that could bear the brunt of a raging sea. He could feel the pound, but he never moved. That's Jesus, the God-man. And with this as our backdrop, he says to the one that's drifted away, he says to the one who's hardened their heart, he says to the one who didn't hold on, he says this, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. They're experiencing conviction. What do we do with this? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, come boldly. Jesus bore the weight of our sin on his shoulders because he had us on his heart. He's our great high priest. Do you remember right before the cross, he looked at Peter and he said, hey, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you, but I'm praying for you. If I had a cross before me the next day, the last thing I'm saying to you is, hey, I'm thinking about you. You're doing all right? I'm begging you to pray for me. Jesus carries our burden and has us on his heart. Hey, Peter, he proves I am your great high priest. And because of what he's done, we have access to God at any time, whenever we're convicted, at any place. We don't don't have to run to the temple. There's no longer a need for a sacrifice because he's not just the high priest. He's the great high priest. He's not the inspecting the lamb. He is the lamb. And he says to us, come boldly. But I need to let you know something. Boldly refers to access, not demeanor. Hey, big daddy in the sky, how you doing? Here I am again. Excuse me? What's up, God? Hey. Because you know what Solomon said? Take time before you go before the Lord. Boldly is referring to access, not demeanor. You can come at any time. But remember, he's the living and the powerful God. Keep that in mind. And he says, when you come, let me tell you what you're coming to. You're coming to the throne of grace. Now, let me explain what the throne of grace is. Grace, he's saying, you're coming to the throne of favor. 
Now, we have 2,000 years of seeing how Jesus does this. In fact, at Calvary Chapel South Bay, we get the blessing every Sunday of watching people come forward to the throne of grace every Sunday. And they're weeping. Did you see? If you were at the 1030 service, did you see the weeping that was happening here? People were just pouring out their heart to their great high priest, and they just met him. They can't believe the freedom that they feel by simply taking a step of faith. We've got to watch this for 2,000 years. But this generation, they'd never seen it before. This is the first generation of Christians. They didn't have 2,000 years of history of watching what Jesus does. We've seen the favor of Jesus over 2,000 years. They're just learning it. And I need to let you know something. There was no easy access to any throne on the face of the planet. Do you remember Esther? Do you know what she did to the entire nation of Israel when she was about to go in front of the king? Pray and fast for me for three days. I don't know if I'm going to lose my head or not. People, you didn't just say, hey, tell Caesar I'm coming. In the same way, you would never show up at the White House and say, tell Biden I'm here. I want to meet him. It just... You know what will happen to you from the Secret Service? If you tried to cross the gate, you're going down, brother. Probably going to jail for the rest of your life. Well, I'm here to see Biden. He better see me. (laughs) Give it a shot. (laughs) Give it a shot and see what happens. Unless you're invited, you could lose your head. There's no easy access to a king. But God's throne, he says, is the throne of favor. It's like when your adult children come home and bring your grandkids. You may not even say hello to your children, but you will welcome those grandkids. You'll give them ice cream, candy, M&Ms, and send them home with their parents. I love it. You guys are like, we're really thankful you're not Jesus. You see, this word, it means welcome. It means loved, embraced, accepted. This is the favor granted to us. The word charis, this is the word grace. The word charis, it means rejoicing. It means kindness, favor, acceptance, gratitude, joy, and pleasure. In other words, when we show up in the throne room, he's stoked. Woo! (laughs) Glad you came. Let's talk. God says It's the throne of favor, and you're my kids, and I love when my kids come in the room to talk to me. And when you come, I know you feel convicted. You can obtain mercy. Mercy. Let me tell you something about mercy. Psalms tells us that his mercy endures. You know what that means? There is nothing you can do on the face of this planet that would cause his mercy to stop flowing from the throne. He has an endless supply. And it's his pleasure. He rejoices. He embraces, accepts. He longs to pour out his mercy on you. Let me tell you why. God knows us. Psalm 103. Take a look at the screen. Psalm 103. As a father pities his children. (laughs) Think of this. Do you remember when your kids were putting the bike together and they could do it? As a father pities his children, so the Lord pity those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. Why do you think Jesus washed their feet? He said, you're clean, but 
your feet are dirty. Because he knew even as believers we would do things that we need to be cleaned up. And he wanted to show the disciples, you're not going to be perfect, but there's a way for you to get back into relationship with God. And the way you'll do it is through me. Then he says, not only will you obtain mercy, listen, church, he says, you will find grace. Now, while mercy, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. But grace, grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And he says, when you come to my throne, you will find, keyword, grace. Now, this word find, this word means to find something you're searching for. In other words, when we go to the throne of grace, we can expect that the throne will provide the favor of forgiveness, restoration, and redemption. You can just expect it. As soon as you go into the throne room, he wants to give it to you. He will never run out of the supply. You know why? Peter tells us he's the God of all grace, not some grace. Not mostly grace. He's the God of all grace. He's got no lack of grace. Grace defines him. But this word find, it means something else. This word find, it means to find what you're not searching for. Like, wow, surprise. Surprise to find you here. You weren't expecting to see them. You're surprised to find them. You see, his grace will always be an unexpected surprise. You think you should be judged. And he pardons you. I had a young man who worked with me in ministry, and he went home on a little weekend birthday party. While he was home, he went back into his old lifestyle. Got drunk, high. And when he came back to the ministry that I was a part of, he was high as a kite. And he looked at me and he goes, I guess you're going to fire me. And I looked at him and I said, nope. Your small group is waiting for you. Sober up. Go minister. You're, you're, you're not going to fire me? I'm high. Like, I'm not even thinking good. Well, then just read the Bible and don't say anything. Some of you are looking at me and going, what, what kind of pastor are you, Pastor Chuck? He needed to fall. And from that day forward, because of the grace that was afforded him, he's never fallen since. And today, today, he expected judgment and he got the surprise of a pardon. And today, He's a pastor in South Florida, and my children go to his church. One day he's going to preach here at Calvary Chapel, South Bay. You see, when you go to the throne of grace, something surprising happens. You think you should be whipped. Like, how many Hail Marys do I have to say? but he welcomes you. When you go to the throne of grace, you feel like you're going to be condemned. 
And then all of a sudden he goes, peace I give you. Whoa, I came to find judgment. I'm so surprised to see grace here. It's the throne of grace. He gives us what we don't deserve out of the abundance of who he is. Who's convicted? Don't raise your hand. Between you and the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit right now is doing the boom. A little surgery going on in your heart. Having issues at home. You and your husband aren't getting along great. You yelled at your kids today. Holy Spirit speaking to you. Cheated on your taxes. Holy Spirit speaking to you said something you probably shouldn't have said and laughed at something you probably shouldn't have laughed at. Watched something that you can't believe. Oh, how did I do that? Slept with someone who's not your wife. He doesn't run out of mercy. Let me tell you something about my children. I have two of them that before the age of nine didn't play video games. They lived them. It's called war. Done and said things. My children, Chet Lowe's children, in every movie you've seen, they did it. There's no seminary that prepares you and there's no parenting class that teaches you how to raise child soldiers. There just isn't. You rely on the grace of God. He doesn't run out of mercy. There's no lack to his grace. There's nothing you've done that he goes, not that one. (laughs) You're on your own, brother. You walk in the throne room, whoa, stoked you're here, man. Let's talk. I got some grace and mercy for you. You're going to find it. It's going to surprise you. You think I'm going to condemn you and make you say 10 Hail Marys. I'm about to blow your mind away. It's not our God. He doesn't operate. That's why he says we don't have that kind of God. But the church for too long, has presented that kind of God. Straighten up and then come. And God says, come as you are. I'll straighten you up. Do you remember what he told Peter? You are Simon. (laughs) I know who you are. You shall be Cephas. I know what I'll make you. So I got a question for you. The first is this. Who are you? It's a great question, isn't it? But the second question I have for you is this. No, really. Who are you? See, the first question we answer with what we want people to think we are. But the second question is who the Spirit sees you to be. 
And right now, as he's got his little surgical knife and he's separating some flesh and spirit, some feeling from faith, and he's speaking a word to you, and you know the word. I don't know the word. He's the spirit. It's the law of the spirit. He's in your heart. So I'm not going to say, you've done social media for four hours and 15 minutes. That's against the law. No, no, no. That might be perfectly good for you. But for some people, four hours and 15 minutes, it's not good. Andre and I, when we were dating, I held her hand. That's all I could do. I couldn't do anymore. Some people, they can put their arm around their girlfriend. I couldn't. Just did something for me. Law of the Spirit. I knew what was good for me. So the Spirit is going to move. He's going to connect. He's going to put his little surgical knife in there. Are you listening? Spirit of the living God, move. Move in this place. Surprise us with your grace. Because we're coming into the throne right now and we're boldly coming. And we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're asking you, Lord, to put your surgical spiritual knife and begin dividing soul and flesh, the flesh and spirit. Divide feeling and faith. Culture versus your context. Would you just ask the Spirit to search your heart right now? Just let Him search your heart. Let Him speak the word that you need to hear tonight. As you sense his conviction, get to the throne room. Get to the throne of grace. He's waiting for you. It's an act of surrender. The Spirit ministered to you tonight. Would you just raise your hand and surrender to the Lord? I want to pray for you. Just raise your hand surrender to the Lord. His surgical knife is ministering, peeling away pieces, taking out those cancerous tumors. So, Father, with these hands that are lifted, I pray that as you, as you remove the thing that's killing them, that you would breathe into them new life. Thank you for the humility. Thank you for their love for you. The evidence of their hands being raised is the proof that the Spirit of the living God is moving in this place. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.